On Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we discuss the life and film career of the always unique character actor Steve Buscemi. On this episode, we're talking about the Alexander Rockwell star-studded crime comedy, Pete Smalls is Dead, from 2010. Welcome to How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the hard-boiled detective, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Oh, man, I'm solving cases. I'm cracking skulls. I'm drinking booze? booze? I don't know. I'm, I'm okay, Doug. I don't How think are you so. Do yeah. you think there's any straight-edge uh, detectives out there? I don't know, Doug. I'm going to go with <laughs> probably not. <laughs> Have you ever been... In contact with someone who's a private detective, like have you, has it ever touched your life in any way to have contact with someone in the private detective business? No, in fact, finding out that that was a real thing at all was like a real eye opener for me. I thought that was just something people made up for the movies. There's a romance to do with private detectiveing, <laughs> detective, <laughs> isn't there? I mean, so so because one of the things we talked about semi recently, I think it was on our episode about um, of of uh, whatever happened to Vic Diaz about the film Savage, is we were talking about the movie Shaft, and you were like, you know, Shaft is kind of cop adjacent, but do you put like a private detective in the same category uh, as your dislike of of authority and dislike of the police? Hmm. You know, I haven't thought about it that much. It does seem like it depends on what they're doing. So th- I guess there's an aspect of being a private detective that involves like, it, um, yeah, I don't know, Doug. I, real life private detectives, don't they just investigate like if men are cheating or, or women are cheating? Sure. Uh, they, that's a big, and and big they investigate insurance claims. <laughs> the part that's investigating insurance claims that that seems like a yeah. cop right there. Yeah, that seems like the worst kind of there, so kind of a cop. Leave those yeah, people yeah, alone. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, the part that investigates cheaters, it doesn't feel like a cop, but it doesn't feel great either, right? It just feels like, I guess, man. I guess if that's what you got to do, sure. Um, the part where, and I don't know how real this is, but in fiction, a lot of private investigators end up doing the sorts of justice work that cops refuse to do. That seems cool, but I don't know how often that actually exists in real life, so I don't know. And then some private investigators just seem like related to bail bondsmen, which is like worse than a cop to some extent. Absolutely. So I I don't know. I don't don't know that I have any romance for private investigators. My knowledge about private detectives is either in the movies, like like actual hard-boiled detective film noir type stuff, or it's from that documentary, This Film Is Not Yet Rated, where they have a private detective who is finding out all the people who rate movies. <laughs> and it seems like the most boring shit where you just sit in your car and just stare, <laughs> looking at doorways for eight hours a day. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're all right. Uh, if you are a private detective or no one and you want to let us know, why don't you go to cinemasmoresport.com and leave us <laughs> a comment. But, Liam, we're not here to talk about specifically private detectives. We're t- here to talk about the great Steve Buscemi, a beloved actor in Hollywood. Uh, he has a new movie, uh, just recently premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival called The Year Between. He plays the parent of a college student who has erratic behavior, alienates everyone around her, 
uh, namely her amusingly panicked roommate <laughs> named Clements. She begrudgingly begins an undesired new chapter in the suburbs, hell-bent on defying her mom, Jay Smith Cameron, and dad, played by Steve Buscemi, younger siblings, therapist, and a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Reviews for this out of Tribeca were not super positive, Liam, but I do want to see Steve Buscemi playing a dad. What do you think about that? Sure, that sounds okay. <laughs> Don't have any strong feelings one way or the other. No, not particularly. <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, will you check out this movie, The Year Between, twenty twenty two? Sure. I mean, look. Here's the deal, right? Like, we don't have a blood oath with Steve Buscemi, but right. uh, but now that I we can just um, stop at any time. Yeah, we could just we could Doug just stop at any time. <laughs> but the reality is, I'm you know. I'm getting curious about some of his newer stuff, even the stuff that looks a little embarrassing. So, yeah, I'll give this a try. Liam, uh, recently, remember I told you that there's a magazine called Far Out Magazine, uh, or at least it's a website called Far Out Magazine, and all I do is kind of look through old, like, uh, Ask Me Anythings and interviews just to find something to write articles about. Well, this is an example of that. It's about the story of Steve Buscemi's worst ever audition, and this comes from his appearance on the Talking Sopranos podcast. Which mentions that he tried to uh, audition for the 1987 comedy Tin Men, directed by Barry Levinson. Have you ever seen this film, Liam? No. I remember seeing the uh, VHS box art a lot back in the 90s when I was going to the video store a lot. This is what Steve Buscemi says about his audition. He says, after showing up at the casting call, Buscemi delivered his own rendition of the character in front of Levinson and the casting director. However, the filmmaker wasn't impressed at all and asked him to do it in a different way. Buscemi recalled, Levinson went, oh yeah, that's good. Now try it like this. And he gave me a very specific direction. Despite the direction, Buscemi ended up performing the role in the same way again. He said, I read the scene again, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I said, I just did it the same way, right? And he goes, yeah. And Buscemi added, I didn't do anything. I just copied exactly the way I did it before. I knew right then, okay, I didn't get the part. It's funny to think, you know, in 1987, if you uh, are auditioning Steve Buscemi, you don't know what he brings to the table. This These days, even though I think he is an actor with a lot of range, I feel like like you know what he could do, right? If you're hiring Steve Buscemi, sure. you know exactly yeah, 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 what, yeah, yeah. what you're in for in terms of, of whether he's appropriate for the character or not. I think that's true, although I'm surprised normally – not normally. Let me just try it again. I'm surprised regularly, Doug, by how little people know about pop culture. You know, like sure. it just feels like there's a whole generation of people that are like – Things existed before 2006, and you're like, yeah, yeah they yeah, did. Yeah, 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 they yeah. existed. And I guess I can't judge them, but I kind of do. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I Every time I judge someone for not knowing something from the 80s or 90s, uh, something being the person, Steve Buscemi, um, I, I just think maybe I'm the old one. Maybe I'm, maybe, the, maybe I'm wrong and the children are right. So if you're someone in their 20s, say you're, in your, you're 25 years old in the year 2022 right now, and you're thinking of who Steve Buscemi is. A, do you know who he is? And B, if you do know who he is, what do you know him from? There's got to be you're a whole... A, you're, say that you're like a fairly like knowledgeable person. Sure, like, like you sure. have your, your ear somewhat to the ground. I mean, a few people know him from Nick Cage movies, right? Like he was in he was in a couple of Nick Cage movies, right? Con Air, certainly. One we covered on this very show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, or you know him from his uh, random appearances in Adam Sandler films. Yes, most certainly. <laughs> and that's it. You probably know him from the meme that gave this very podcast its name, the How Do You Do Fellow Kids? I was, no, I was getting there, right? Oh, sorry. Um, no, it's okay. Uh, like, that seems obvious. And he's recreated that meme. So you probably know him as the guy who became a meme and then did the meme again. So that's 
kind of cool, right? I guess. There was also the know. Buscemi eyes meme, right? Where they would swat about his eyes for other people's faces. That was a few sure. years back, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Doug. What else has he done that people would be aware of in a more modern context? Liam, you fell into my trap. What's that? That's the next article we're going to talk about, which is oh, no. these are Steve Buscemi's highest grossing movies. And this might actually provide a little insight into what a young person might know Steve Buscemi for. Um, I, I was a little surprised by this, and it might take you by surprise. But I want you to tell me, Liam, what do you think are, say, one of the top three highest grossing Steve Buscemi movies? You might be surprised. <laughs> Because I have a top 10 here from therichest.com. I mean, I don't know how accurate this is, but they got a number, so we're going to go with it. Man, I don't know, Doug. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, obviously I'm thinking of a movie like Con Air. Sure. Well, you've you've, you've hit one right on the head. Number one with 224.117 million is Con Air. Hmm. I'm going to have to say one of the movies is going to have to be... Was he in one of the Monsters movies, I feel like, right? Like, mm, Indeed he was. I believe he was in both of the uh, both Monsters, Inc. and its sequel. Yeah, so I'm going to go with probably Monsters, Inc., right? Monsters, Inc., number nine on the list. Oh, that's a bummer. For, for some know. reason, it's number oh, nine on the oh, list. Oh, I, you know, when I said Hotel Transylvania, oh, I didn't say Hotel Transylvania. When I said Adam Sandler movies, I wasn't thinking of Hotel Transylvania. But he's in Hotel Transylvania, right? Which is an Adam Sandler movie that I don't think about a lot, but Maeve likes... Well, she only likes the first one, but he's you know he's the werewolf character, maybe right? Yeah, I, in- I, I don't. I've never seen those movies, but he's definitely in them. You know, it's kind of funny now that I'm looking at this list. Even though it's ranked ten to one, the tenth one that's listed is actually the highest grossing, and the number one is actually the tenth most highest grossing. So when I oh, said Connor was number other- one, it it's actually number ten. Uh, but you're hitting, but, but you are hit, you're hitting some heavy hitters because uh, Monsters University is number one, really the the highest. Wait, that movie seven. made more than the Monsters Inc. Monsters University made seven hundred forty three point four five five million, while Monsters Inc. made five hundred sixty point four eight three million, so significantly more than Monsters Inc. Huh. Okay. Uh, then which... uh, Hotel Transylvania three. Uh, made five hundred twenty-seven point eight four eight million, so that's on the list. Uh, really, right behind it is Hotel Transylvania Two, which made four hundred sixty-nine point eight three one million. Okay, uh, but I don't believe, yeah, the first Hotel Transylvania is not on the list. Weird. Okay. Um, what else is he in? Fuck. It's I have a. I have a Steve Buscemi podcast. Yeah, I should know these. I mean, things. you're hitting them. You're, I mean, you hit one of them in. I will say the one that's most surprising on this list is a movie that you might not even be aware that he did a voice in because I wasn't aware that this movie even existed. It's the gerbil action film G Force, uh, also a, child, a children's film um, where where he does the voice. I think of a guinea pig. I, uh, I forgot that movie even existed. So yeah, and that I'm made two hundred ninety two point eight one seven million, putting it ahead of both Grown Ups Two, which made two hundred forty seven million, uh, Big Daddy, which made two hundred twenty eight million, and Con Air, which made two hundred twenty four. As I already mentioned, so his small appearances in some of these Adam Sandler movies are are some of his highest grossing. I feel like there's got to be a two thousands or late nineties action movie I'm forgetting. The one that you're forgetting. And I don't believe you've mentioned it yet. Is Armageddon, which is his. Oh yeah, no, I hate that movie. I haven't seen it since it came out. 
That movie made a lot of money, though, huh? Where's that? You mean you mean the Criterion Collection? (laughs) Yeah, fuck that. I don't not like that movie. Yeah, that movie is number three behind the both Monsters Inc. films uh, at five hundred and fifty-four point six million, and the one right behind that is another one you might not think of is The Boss Baby with five hundred and twenty-seven point nine million. I completely forgot he was in Boss Baby, though I have seen Boss Baby. Too many fucking times. Oh, really? Because you child. have a child. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess that makes sense. But that's, I mean, some highest grossing stuff there, but a lot of voice work. I wouldn't have expected, and that's what I was getting at before. Young people might know him more by his voice than what he actually looks like. You know what? That's probably true, actually. I hadn't thought of that, but he's been in a few of these cartoon movies that I wasn't really thinking about. Uh, the only one I really came to me was the Hotel Transylvania, because the Hotel Transylvania is just... A stand-in for Adam Sandler movies. You know what I mean? Like right. they they've added in um, what's his name um, from Kevin. Uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. No. Uh, oh, uh, and Andy Samberg. Yeah. So Andy Samberg is like the new element, but the rest of the cast just feels like any old fucking Adam Sandler movie to me. <laughs> I haven't know? seen those movies, but I didn't realize just how incredibly popular they were, or at least very profitable. You know, when the first one came out, it felt like a joke, like a bad sure. joke, like this isn't going to last. And then, bada-bing, bada-boom, these sequels are making all this money. I thought, oh, I must have missed out on the first one because, obviously. So I watched that first one. It's not terrible. You know, it's not good, but it's not terrible. The sequel is actually a little bit more charming, I would say, than the first sure. one. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I have tried not to watch them because I just Are these care. the kind of movies that, like, kids would watch again and again, that sort of thing? I don't know. I mean, I not my I child. My child has, <laughs> my child really only rewatched a few movies and is much more interested at this point in YouTube, which is its own kind of torture beyond movies. Liam, several episodes ago, we watched a film called In the Soup. Do you remember this? I do remember it, yes. Now, that was directed by the gentleman who directed the film that we're going to be talking about today, Pete Smalls is Dead, Alexander Rockwell. Um, this feels in some way like a continuation, not a sequel. To in the soup, but certainly trying to maintain or recapture the same tone in that film. We have Seymour Cassell, and of course, Steve Buscemi shows up once again in this. Some other familiar faces from that movie as well, including, surprisingly, Carol Kane, who we have a podcast devoted to. She shows up in Pete Smalls is Dead as well. Is this a movie that you had ever heard of before? I want to say no, though I do feel like once I saw the poster, that I've seen the poster and thought like, oh, Peter Dinklage, who I was familiar with from... The station agent, I think. Sure, absolutely. Uh, before he joined the cast of Game of Thrones. From the um, director of The Cobbler, which we've featured on this as well. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Do you remember that fucking oh. movie? God damn it, yeah, God. Uh, okay, sorry. Um, but yeah, yeah, you were aware of P- Peter Dinklage, and, and he was, of course, um, in... Oh, shit, what's the fucking movie? Hold on a second. <laughs> The one where he's the guy who writes kids' books and he's imperious? What is that one? No. But he is in that, right? Elf. He's an elf. Yeah. I was thinking of Living in Oblivion, which uh, is one of Steve Buscemi's breakout roles as well. Oh, sure, 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 sure. sure. That's that, that, I think, was his breakout role. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of Peter Dinklage, though I really do want to get your take on him in this film, um, a movie that... Um, is very strange. It's a very weird movie with a really incredible cast. Just lots of familiar faces all the way through it. They just keep popping up, including um, <laughs> someone very familiar to us on this podcast, Mark Boone Jr., former partner, comedy partner, or a performance partner of Steve Buscemi. Seymour uh, Cassell, as I mentioned, Peter Dinklage, Rosie Perez, and Tim Roth. Let's take a break, Liam. When we come back, 2010's Pete Smalls is dead. 
is a masterpiece. Smallest picture is a goat. Or is it? The search is on. You want your dog back? I will get your dog for you. For a stolen movie. Oh, Mom! What is this quote? You go bananas! But these two guys are about to find out what love. Two old pals attend an old friend's funeral and find there is more to his death than him being dead. It's 2010's Pete Smalls is dead, or is he? No, it's just called Pete Smalls is dead. Directed by Alexander Rockwell, of course, uh, the director of In the Soup, but I recently discovered, you might find this interesting, Liam, that he's married to Karen Parsons, who played Hilary Banks on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I did not know that. That is very interesting. That might also explain why Tatiana Ali, who also from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, shows up in this movie. I'm really surprised by that. The bunny waitress uh, that shows up briefly in this. Uh, written by Alexander Rockwell and also co-written by Brandon Cole, who wrote the 2002 comedy 13 Moons, which shares some cast with Pete Smalls is Dead, including Steve Buscemi playing a character named Bananas the Clown and Peter Dinklage playing a character called Binky. And just knowing that those two characters are in 13 Moons makes me want to check it out right now. Binky sounds interesting. You don't think Bananas the Clown sounds interesting as well? No. Bananas sounds like a boring name for a clown. Bananas the Clown might be a good name for Steve Buscemi's character in this film. Yeah. Uh, this movie stars, as we mentioned before, the great Mark Boone Jr., Peter Dinklage, are basically the two leads. We have Seymour Cassell, Todd Barry, the comedian, shows up, Steve Buscemi, wearing, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, Rosie Perez, Tim Roth, Lena Headey from uh, Game of Thrones, uh, Peter Dinklage and Lena Headey before Game of Thrones in this, and Carol Kane as a landlady. Other f- familiar faces as well. Liam, let's just start. Let's get your thoughts out of the way. What did you think of 2010's Pete Smalls is Dead? There's so much here to like, Doug. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of like fun and charming performances. There's a lot of interesting ideas. And there is, to my eye, a deep appreciation for The Long Goodbye, a film I also have a deep appreciation for. But sometimes appreciation goes wrong, Doug. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't work. Think, for example, of all the people who love a band that you love, and then you check out their band and you think, nah, dog, that ain't it. That's how I felt about this movie. It just doesn't ever click in. It never connects. And it um, certainly doesn't show, in my mind, the respect to the things to which it is paying homage, uh, which is, you know, a general neo-noir-ness. I mean, I'll tell you what. First off, for me, the 90s aspect of this film is the part where it's like, you know what's a really interesting world that people love to hear about? Filmmaking. Let's make a film about filmmaking. No one's tired of that. I am tired. This is a 2010 film. That's what I'm saying. That's why I I felt so 90s. Because this was such a cool thing to do in the 90s. And let's even say late 90s into the early 2000s, right? Yeah, like Get Shorty era. Yeah, totally, totally. And, And I am over this world. Certainly the idea that this world is nearly as interesting as the strange 
uh, backdrop of the long goodbye or 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 any number of other neo-noir movies influenced by that one um and you know you even brought up when we were talking about this off mic movies like the big lebowski and inherent vice this movie does not manage to even half create the strange uh backdrop of la i will say that visually i do like that this movie is a lot more like hey most of LA is shitty, and let me show yes. you all the shitty parts of LA. Absolutely, yeah. That's my like that. favorite. That is my second favorite part of the movie. My most favorite part is uh, Mark Boone Jr. Oh, God, you stole it. I was going to say He's my favorite so part. He's so fucking great. He's so he, fucking great. You know what? This crystallized Mark Boone Jr. as an actor for me, this film did, where it's just like, I mean, I've liked him. We've talked about him a lot because he shows up in a lot of these movies. What I realized when he showed up in this and his performance in it is, I fucking love Mark Boone Jr. He's amazing. (laughs) He should be in more stuff. He's so fucking sleazy. You know how you can have a food sometimes where it's two ingredients and you know that the one ingredient only works because the other ingredient is doing all the work. Sure. But you do like them together. I like these two in this movie. Peter Dinklage is doing nothing but looking tired. He's like thinking that this man would do either the station agent, a movie I love or his performance in game of Thrones, which is like, I have mixed feelings on game of Thrones, but I do think he is good in game of Thrones. Everything except that accent, I think, is good in his performance. Yeah, his accent is <laughs> terrible in that. But, I mean, Game of Thrones, whose accent is good, really? Yeah, exactly. Except the actual British people. <laughs> right, right, right. Even then, I think some of the real British people in Game of Thrones are kind of, like, eating the scenery a little bit. Like, oh, what? sure. Hey, the performances, I mean, he, he. I think that's what it really gets at, right? I mean, right. It's, it, especially because it's a fantasy scenario, so it uh-huh. doesn't matter if their accents are spot on. Well, but if, whatever... you re- if you really like all the parts where Tyrion is sad and tired, you get that this whole fucking movie. And even when things are revealed, he gets his dog back or whatever, he can't even manage a spark of life at that point. Like, in fact, I think because I love his interactions with Markman Jr. so much in the film, I don't notice how exhausting he is until the end of the movie when you're like, oh, the movie technically kind of has a, I don't know if I would say happy ending, but it it has a resolution, Doug, and that resolution does nothing to lift the pall over uh, fu- over his fucking performance. You know, Tyrion is going to be sad the whole goddamn movie, and by the end, I was kind of like, all right, it's it's all the energy from this movie comes from Mark Boone Jr. You know, yeah. um, especially if you be- come, if you start thinking of like it being like the long goodbye and the Philip right. Marlowe yes. character who's also yes. kind of like a hound dogish type of thing, but like, he's very sarcastic. He's, he he's gets so, excited. He's so exciting to watch. The performance yeah. is so exciting to watch. And like all the energy of performance is coming from Mark Boone jr. And literally our man could have Dinklage could have just been fucking sleeping through this. Like yeah. it's to the point where I, I hate to say it. Anyone could have played this role. You know what I mean? And, and honestly, outside of a couple of jokes about his size, Literally, anyone could have played this role that could manage to look tired. You know what I mean? And that's a bummer because I think he's actually a great performer. And I don't know why the decision was for him to, like, basically not show up for this fucking movie when Mark Boone Jr. is, like, fully embodied and present, as are a number of the other performers who are just doing silly things. Like, you know, Steve Buscemi, as well as a number of other people, are just (laughs) visual jokes. They're just a fucking gag. And they're still more present than he is, you know? I do like this idea, right, where it's, you take yeah. these characters the, that, that, you know, and the funny thing is, as a comedy team, it works because uh-huh. this low energy 
hound dog, you know, a depressed character by Peter Dinklage, and this complete whacked out fucking fat idiot played by Mark Boone Jr. <laughs> Those two together are great, but then you have to have them together interact with people, and that's not so great because the energy is off, right? I mean, it yeah. doesn't really work. Um, but I love that idea of you take characters and then and then you introduce them to a series of interactions, right? And you get all this kind of interplay between people. And this movie has a lot of great actors that they get to spend time with. Though yeah. I also think this movie has a lot of wasted actors in it. People Agreed. who just don't have anything to do. I mean, Lena Headey's probably a good example, but she's not really, she didn't become famous until later. But like, Rosie Perez doesn't really have anything to do in this either. Well, that's my problem. I, I think the Lena Headey thing is a great example because she wasn't famous yet. And I had to look that up because the way that she's played in the movie She's again played as like it's funny that she's just in the movie, but it's not funny because who is she? You know what I mean? You see what I'm saying? You know like, what? She was pretty famous though, right? Because 300, she was a, had a big part in that, and that was like four years. I guess before that's this. true. I guess that's true. It's but I I just don't think any actor, uh, whoever they are, should be boiled down to a visual fucking gag, and yeah. like. You know, Steve Buscemi's given a little bit more, but his characters is 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 flirting the edge of just being a gag, and uh, other other people in the movie are given are, are are sort of put in that position too. And I just think that like for me, um, the joke of like look at all these fucking famous friends I had to show up in this movie to do stupid stuff, it can be done in a way that is fun and charming. But usually, the way it's done that's fun and charming, Doug, involves the fucking Muppets, and this is not yeah. a Muppet movie, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. Also, it really is relying on dialogue. And while there's yeah. a lot of like, there's there's some really fun interactions in this, but like, it's not you don't you're not Raymond Chandler, you're not the Coen Brothers, right? I mean, this this movie just doesn't. Ha- when I think of the interactions in this, I do think of like how the characters look and some of the quirks of it, like making Steve Buscemi's character like this, having this weird masochist relationship with his girlfriend and stuff like that. But like that isn't the dialogue. The dialogue isn't that interesting, and it relies so heavily on the dialogue. One of the things that works for the the kind of movie that this is, in which our characters never know, like, so the thing about the big Lebowski, right, is all these things happen to Lebowski, and he never figures it out until the very end, and he's utterly irrelevant. Almost nothing he does in the movie matters. Things just happen around him, and the reason that works is, A, he's compelling as someone to watch. We just want to see what's happening to him, and B the ultimate story is compelling with all the complexities and everything that's revealed in it. That's compelling. Right. This movie, uh, you almost get there with Mark Boone Jr., but ultimately our people we're watching fumble around aren't that interesting. And the reason they're fumbling around, also not interesting. And then the big reveal of Tim Roth being alive, it's just like, it's just not that cool. And so... Tim, Tim Roth, by the way, listeners who haven't seen this, is Pete Smalls, who's supposed yes. to be dead. Yes, yes. <laughs> And by the way, were you at all surprised when he was alive? Was that a big Not reveal for, for you? for a second. I, as soon as yeah. I read the title of the fucking thing, a movie, I'm like, oh, yeah, he's going to end up being alive. Especially because I knew he's played by a famous actor who has nothing else to do in the movie. So, the you know, the whole movie fo- fo- functions basically as like a fog of war, right? Our characters have no idea what's going on, and things change so often they never get their footing. And yet somehow it lacks energy, and it's never really that compelling, even though it manages to be somewhat entertaining. And I think... I'm being too hard on this movie because it's got such talent in it. It's got such potential in it. And I think that parts of it are very funny. But overall, it ends and it feels like a wasted effort. And that's frustrating to me because I think it I think it could have been pretty good, Doug. I think the potential is there for a much better movie that we don't see in this movie. 
I think this movie is too concerned with having a sympathetic character at its core. Sure. So yeah. we're supposed to feel sorry for Peter Dinklage in this. His dog's been kidnapped. He, his wife had cancer and died. He's obviously very sad and, and depressed because of it. He has her name tattooed on his shoulder. But if this movie just starred Mark Boone Jr. instead as his fucking whacked out screenwriter who had his ideas stolen so a, a filmmaker can make a kung fu movie for some reason, which doesn't work either in the context of the movie. That, to me, you know, and then, I mean, it would still require some better writing. My problem is, I think, or my concern would be, you had this schlubby Mark Boone Jr. going in these adventures in L.A. is that it would invite even more comparisons to The Big Lebowski. I mean, I think he's a very different kind of actor, but I think Oh, me right. too. Yeah, yeah, I Absolutely. think you're right. I, you know, the performance is look, nothing like the yeah. Big Lebowski, but the no. vibe could be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's more like Benicio del Toro in <laughs> Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas. He is just off yeah, of shit yeah, the entire yeah, time. Yeah, 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 I, I mean, yeah, yeah. there's a lot. I, I think, again, I know that you're, you don't mean to be so hard on it. There's lots I really do like about this movie. I really like the uh, interactions with Mark Boone Jr. and his, his daughter and her boyfriend and all that sort of stuff. One of the you know best I mean? parts of the movie. That I, I wish we had more uh, Seymour Cassell in this because when he shows up, it reminds me so much of In the Soup because he's not playing a similar character necessarily, but his energy is very similar. And knowing how much of a pain in the ass he was on that set, the idea that they brought him back to play, again, someone who wants to fund a movie and in a, in a very kind of undefined way, it seems like they were aiming for that energy. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, this is a movie where it gives you tastes of things that seem really good but you never really get the full meal, you know? It just always feels like it's being taken away right before it gets good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's true. I think that's true. I think also that we, we I think both of us have compared it to a very 90s vibe, and I think that that might come across as like a charming throwback. But for me, and I think possibly for you too, what I'm describing is a feeling that this ground has already been well-trod. Well Exactly. That we're, we're doing something that we don't need to be doing anymore, and we're not doing it in a new way because I don't think we're doing it in a self-aware way. I don't think anyone on set's going, yo, doesn't this feel like the 90s? Uh, remember that? Remember in the 90s when we were in movies like this? Like, I don't think it's, – it's not a recreation. It's not an homage. It's just doing something that's so played out that it's hard not to think of another decade than the decade it's in. It feels like a script that existed in the 90s that was right. taken off the shelf and made, yeah. Because even the way that people talk about movies and movie making in 2010 are far removed from how things were in the 90s, but this treats it like things are still the same like it was back then. Yeah, it feels like an old script. That's exactly what it feels like. I do think it's funny, too. It's so focused on negatives, and I'm like, in 2010, were we still doing that much on negatives? Yeah, no, again, it, it, it has that feeling of, I mean, and not even like late 90s. It really does feel like mid-90s uh -huh, Sundance, uh -huh. uh, you know, like Tarantino-era type movie making. Again, not influenced necessarily by Tarantino specifically, but I mean, you know, the, the Alexander was uh, was part of that group. He was in, you know, Four Rooms. He Oh, his movie, sorry. He directed a segment of Four Rooms. He was thought of within that class. It's just interesting to see him still kind of treading that water when a lot of his contemporaries have moved on. Um, I mean, it's it's not sad, necessarily. It, it, it's, it's a movie that I think has a lot to recommend it, but it just, it never comes together. And I also feel like the plot loses its way about three-quarters of the way through to the point where I felt like I didn't really understand what was going on anymore. There's a part where the lead characters, they go to Mexico to try to track down this French woman that has stolen the film, and they need the film in order to... Uh, sell it back to these producers and I mean at that point it's got, gotten very convoluted but it also feels very 
fake. It feels like that that this does not exist in a reality that I recognize anymore. And as far as movies like The Big Lebowski and um, and The Long Goodbye go into the direction of comedy, they they all still keep one foot in reality. This movie, I think, it kind of it, it oversteps that line. Yeah, Particularly by the with end, like the, the Mexican fiesta at the fucking end of it. Yeah, I agree. I think by the end it doesn't really make sense, and I don't know why I should care. <laughs> because there's lots of cool people in it, Liam. Okay. One of those cool people, by the way, as we already mentioned, is Carol Kane. She shows yeah. up as a landlady. It kind of feels like she's she's doing it, you know, as a favor because she showed up in in the soup as well for, in, for just one scene. Uh, here she shows up, has some funny lines. Basically, Marpoon Junior has pretended he's a family member of someone in order to get access to the apartment, and she is looking for utility fees from them. Uh, what did you th- What did you think of her appearance in this? Uh, it's probably going to be a long time before we reach this in praising. Yeah. Care. It was fine. It was funny. It wasn't great, but it was fine. You know, she reminded me a lot of her character on Kimmy Schmidt. I mean, she basically Agreed. played. Yeah, <laughs> it felt like an audition piece for that show, which didn't start for what another seven, eight years. Yeah, when did that start? Well, let's look it up right after uh, Thirty Rock ended. Kimmy Schmidt, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt started in 2015, so five years after this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you a fan of that show? By the way, I love it. Love it. Big fan. I wonder how it's held up. You know, there's a lot of uh, elements of that show that even when it was on were very controversial. You know, that having the Native American aspect and um, and there was some humor that people didn't necessarily appreciate regarding Asians. Um, I wonder if some of that had, would make it hard to go back to. I think that's true. I think it's – I hate to say it, but I think everything Tina Fey touches – it tends to have some embarrassing aspect that you regret yes. later. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, it's funny because 30 Rock, I think, is still generally considered a, to be like a superior comedy of that era. But it kind of feels like the reputation of Kimmy Schmidt has kind of fallen off a cliff. Yeah, I don't think that's actually fair. I don't – I. but then again, maybe I'm wrong. I, it, it's been a while since I thought about it. Like I didn't – 30 Rock I've rewatched once or twice. Sure. You know what I mean? I haven't rewatched Kimmy Schmidt, so I might. I think I think what holds those shows together is that there's great writing on it, while also mixing yeah. in a bunch of really problematic shit. <laughs> but I mean, we bring it up because uh, even though this is not a show about Carol Kane, that she's wonderful on that particular show. Yeah, yeah. How you feeling, Liam? Oh, I'm okay. Okay. Liam, we got to talk about Steve Buscemi as Bernie Lake in this movie. Uh, I don't think I brought it up at this point, uh, but it's certainly the first thing that came to mind when I saw him in it. He is wearing a ridiculous blonde permed wig yep. in this movie, uh, sitting next to the great Michael Lerner. They're, they're playing these kind of low-down producers uh, or money men in Hollywood that they keep that Mark Boone Jr. and Peter Dinklage keep going to in order to try to kind of uh, convince them that they have the rights to this movie so they can buy it. Uh, what did you think of Steve Buscemi? Uh, in this movie, and what did you think of how he looks in this movie? I mean, he looks ridiculous, and it's yes. on purpose, right? It's like he, he he's like a fake blonde Afro serial killer. He's got leather on and these creepy gloves and stuff, and then he's got this assistant who he's very clear that they're having sex, and then later on they apparently do some sort of like like uh, abuse role play yes. and all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean. The other guy is Michael Lerner, right? Is, is, yeah, is, yeah. Is, uh, he's great too. Like I think I, he has the more understated of the two of them, but it, it, he nails it in a way that was also really good. But you know, this is just uh, 
sometimes people get Steve Buscemi because they want the joke, you know? And he nails it. Like, this is his awkward yelling, what's going on here? And, like, I fucking love that. Like, that's... It's it's not like a all you know a career performance, but is it is it one of the jokes in the movie that actually works? Yeah, I do think that part of the humor here is supposed to be, hey, it's Subasemi, the guy that you know in a yes. thousand different things. Yes. Here he is looking ridiculous. What do you think about that? Like that's part of why he's here. Just going back to Michael Lerner for a second, Liam, have you ever seen the movie Anguish, the horror movie from nineteen eighty seven? Michael Lerner stars in it. I don't know who else is in that movie. Uh, the other, I mean, the person that you'd recognize the most is Zelda Rubenstein from... Yes, I have seen it, yes. That movie is fucking wild. That movie Very is wild. so whacked out. I had never heard about it before, and then I went to an all-night uh, horror movie theatrical thing, and that was like the first movie that they showed, and I had no context for it. And I'll tell you, that movie is a movie to see in a movie theater <laughs> with no knowledge about it whatsoever. It might be one of the wildest experiences because I just did not expect it. Anyway, I know we're not here to talk about anguish, but that's a movie I'd love to cover on a podcast at some point. I saw it uh, at a horathon, so I have seen right. it in the theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, it, did you know anything about it going in? No, had no idea. I, I, I think someone told me that uh, Zelda, whatever her name is, was in it. Rune scene. Yeah, Rune scene. Oh, that's yeah. all I knew was that she was in it. And I didn't know anything else about it. And it's it's a crazy movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so any other final thoughts, Liam, on uh, the <laughs> Pete Smalls is Dead from 2010? I mean, Semi, he has a lot of fun in it, has a couple of scenes. Not really the most notable or memorable part of it. When you think back to this movie, what are you going to think about? I think if you pick this movie out on a random night to stream, it's not going to ruin your night. I think you'll be dissatisfied, but whatever. If in 2010, which is when I was still going to Film Fest, I had like gone to a 10 o'clock screening of this, excited to see this Steve Buscemi, <laughs> Peter Dinklage, whatever, I would have been a bit bummed. I think it's a little bit of a letdown, but it's not terrible, which is, I guess, faint praise, but it is what it is. On Letterboxd, when I go to the reviews for this movie, there aren't a lot of them, but what it is, what you do find in the reviews is that there are people like us in there, in the sense that oh, I watched this because Lena Headey is in it. Oh, I watched this because Peter Dinklage is in it, right? They're going to it because of certain actors being in it. And I think that there's, you know, that's why you have these kind of really varied, familiar cast is to kind of not trick people, but get them to check it out and hopefully be drawn in. To me, in this particular case, there's just not much to it besides, hey, this person showed up for a scene and they're fun. This person showed up and they're fun. But it just never really held me. Like, I think it... It has a confidence of a movie that is supposed to be a lot more engaging than it actually is. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it's I, I wasn't mad, but I didn't feel like I'd remember much about it later. That's it. If you like Mark Boone Jr., uh, this is a movie that gives him a lot of time, and he really rises to the occasion. One of my favorite of his performances that we've yeah. seen. I guess so if far. I'm frustrated by anything, it's that I wish hit that performance was in a bigger project. Yeah, absolutely, Liam. I have a surprise for you. Okay. I told you that on the next episode of How Do You Do Fellow Kids, we were going to watch the uh, live-action version of Charlotte's Web. I think it's live-action. maybe a mixture of CG from 2006 with Julia Roberts. I said, forget that. I wanted to watch a movie I've never seen before. We're going to watch 1994's Airheads. <laughs> I can't believe you've never seen it. 
Never oh seen it. God. I've mentioned it before on this show. Uh, I feel like we've hit a couple of movies like that. Well, this movie that is not as well known. I'm like, let's go back to a movie that people seem to really love. And in particular, one that I have not ever seen before. On the next episode it. of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we will be watching Airheads. Perfect. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. <laughs> and you know what's great is it's been so long since I've seen it. I don't even remember if I like it or not. I just know I've seen it. A bunch Wouldn't that be TV. such a bummer? <laughs> no, it'll it. be great. I'm so excited. I, whatever my feeling is, I'm excited to see it. Well, I, I'm looking forward to it. I, uh, despite my reputation as a fuddy-duddy, I, this seems exactly like the kind of movie I should really enjoy. And I love like 98% of the cast. So uh, we'll check it out. I'm looking forward to it on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. Liam, if people want to check out more episodes of this podcast or other podcasts of its ilk, what's the best way for them to do so? Of course, they can always go to Cinepunks.com to check out uh, our latest episodes, as well as episodes of Twitch of the Death Nerve, Horror Business, Cinepunks, all kinds of great podcasts over there. Uh, there's a merch store. There's a blog. There's lots of stuff to check out. They can head to our website to dive into the archive at cinemasmorgasbord.com, where not just uh, this uh, uh, Steve Buscemi focus show but a whole bunch of stuff that we do over there uh, to check out uh, they can find Cinepunks on social media C-I-N-E-P-O-N-X on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and we are on uh, Twitter at Cinema Smorg and Cinema Smorgasbord on Facebook uh, you of course are on Twitter at Doug Tilly no Doug underscore right. Tilly at that's Doug underscore Tilly, that's T I L L E Y. It's funny when I edited this. When I edit this together, it's going to sound like we both said that at the same time. I love that. Please do that. I love that. And and of course, I'm at Liam Rules on Twitter. That's R U L Z. Liam, we recently recorded for the Cinema Punks. Cinema Punks. Fuck. We recently recorded for the Cinepunks Patreon a uh, a special. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it a Cinema Smorgasbord episode, especially because you edited it and it uh, is not on our regular feed. But there's a special episode featuring both of us talking about the Misfits seminal punk album "Walk Among Us." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there a is a bit. There is a ten minute clip in the middle where I edited you together to make it sound like you say "I hate Canada," but other <laughs> than that, it's very much Cinema Smorgasbord. Hey, Liam, despite my reputation, I do fucking hate Canada. <laughs> so it doesn't bother me whatsoever for you to say that. Uh, no, if you if you have not gotten sick of us, or maybe you want to hear us talk about something aside uh, from movies, uh, you can sign up to the Cinema Cinepunks uh, <laughs> Patreon. for what's the, what's the lowest level that you can sign up for? A dollar. A buck? A buck for like 90 minutes of us talking about a punk album from 1980-whenever? That's true, yeah. I mean, pretty good. And more uh, special uh, bonus episodes to come if you just can't get enough of us on your... I don't know, your day at work or on your way to the office or when you're just at home uh, doing what I do recently, Liam, which is playing a power wash simulator on my Xbox. Yeah, that sounds so lame, but sure. (laughs) It is, it is, but I will say that as a way to catch up on podcasts, uh, it has been really a boon, a, a glorious addition to my life. Okay. Some of us don't have children to put our hopes and dreams into. <laughs> Speaking of children, I need to get to mine. Yes, okay, Liam. Well, we're going to be back very soon with 1994's Airheads. Good night, everyone. Where are my friends? All my friends are dead. All my friends are dead. Got kicked in the head. 